Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. If you haven't already checked out our lineup of online lectures for this year, please visit our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com slash lectures. We had a great first talk from I.C. Sedgwick about the stories found in the Victorian Penny Dreadfuls. Our next lecture in a couple of weeks is from criminal barrister Naomi Ryan, who'll be discussing times when the paranormal had a part to play in legal cases. As with all of our talks, ticket holders get a chance to ask questions on the night and also receive a video replay to watch if they can't make it to the whole thing live. All of the details are on the website, and the profits from these talks support both our work and that of the Folklore Library and Archive. I hope you can join us. On this week's episode, we're looking at a tradition that might be considered to be quintessentially English, but with a twist. When you think of Morris dancing, you'll probably picture a group of dancers with bells on their legs, holding sticks or handkerchiefs, and dancing to traditional tunes played live by fiddle or squeeze box or other acoustic instruments. Historically performed by men, there are now, thankfully, plenty of mixed dance teams as well as ladies' groups. The Morris dancing that we're considering this week is somewhat different, although it has its origins in the north of England, not from the industrial areas from where Border and Clog Morris emerged, but rather coming out of the carnival traditions, hence its name, Carnival Morris. If you can, pause the podcast and follow the link on the episode page for this episode to watch a video of a Carnival Morris team in action. Or just search for Carnival Morris on YouTube and you'll find it easily enough. If you can't do that now, don't worry. My guest today will give you a full description of what's involved and then you can watch an example later. Lucy Wright is a researcher and artist whose work explores, amongst other things, the relationships between folk, nationalism and colonialism. For many years, she collected material related to Carnival Morris and is one of the few outsiders to have gained the trust of Carnival Morris troops and been allowed access to their world. She joined me recently to record for you a valuable insight into a world that few get to see in any detail. So, Lucy, hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Hello, thank you. Lovely to be here. So, we're going to talk today about a Morris dance tradition. Now, there are a a number of Morris dance traditions across England and beyond, obviously. Uh, If you look on the English Folk Dance and Song Society website, you'll see them all very conveniently listed. Border Morris, Cotswold Morris, Clog, Molly, various other things. But the one that you work with particularly, and the one that we're going to talk about today, is one that's probably far more obscure to a lot of people, for various reasons that we'll go into. And that is Carnival Morris. So... Can you start, because a lot of people probably won't know the answer to this, by just answering the very simple question, what is Carnival Morris? <laughs> so you say it's a simple question. I don't know. Um, I'll I'll do my best. So Carnival Morris is also known as Fluffy Morris, or I just call it Girls Morris. 
Um, it's a team formation dance uh, that's performed pretty much exclusively in the northwest of England. So we're talking Greater Manchester, Merseyside, uh, Old Lancashire and, and historically Cheshire too. Um, but it's very much geographically bounded. It's performed to recorded pop music. It involves uh, amazing kind of sequin dresses and pom-poms like cheerleaders use, but they call them shakers in Girls Morris. And it's performed by primarily, you know, girls and young women. And we're talking from being, I guess, 18 months old, as old as you can you know, walk, you can be in a Girls Morris troupe right up until, you know, retirement age. So it's it's a really amazing intergenerational performance uh yeah dance to pop music with these incredible costumes and it's performed these days indoors so in contrast to a lot of more traditional i shouldn't say more traditional what we think of as traditional morris dancing groups it's performed privately in sports halls and community centers yeah Uh, and you call it girls morris or it's also sometimes referred to as women's carnival morris as well but that doesn't mean that it's only performed by girls right in the same way that traditional morris dancing where we talk about teams of morris men are no longer necessarily only performed by men Is that fair mm, it's a good it's an interesting point i have never seen any male morris dan- no that's not true I've, I've perhaps seen one girls morris dancer <laughs> that's crazy one male girls morris dancer um yeah, so it's it is the it is very much a female led, female directed performance, and I think probably the reason why it has remained so kind of gender bounded is that it's so much about synchronicity between members of the troupe, and so actually kind of looking alike, dressing alike, that uniformity is such an important part of the performance. And what I missed from saying to you in that last point, a really crucial thing about girls' Morris dancing, which is in contrast to other forms, is that it's it's highly competitive. So it functions very much like a sports team. And so there are marks awarded for that uniformity. So on the whole, it is really just girls and young women. But I have seen some very few male carnival Morris dancers. And in other, so the other thing that Girls Morris dancing is perhaps more akin to, well, it, it would identify more closely with a group of performances that I sort of term British carnival performances. So there's four of them. We've got the Girls Morris, we've got entertainer troops, we've got jazz kazoo marching bands, and we've got majorettes. And they are very much, they call themselves the carnival world. They are the kind of four parts to that. And some of those other performances do involve more male participants. But Girls Morris is pretty much all girls. (laughs) Fair enough. And maybe when we think about um, the synchronicity of Carnival Morris, you say that is a really important point. And and many people would see it and think of majorettes, in fact, and think of cheerleading because they do look quite similar. I can't think of anything that is as precisely synchronous in its performance other than perhaps synchronised swimming as being so in sync and the importance of that as well. I mean, it really is, you know, to the millimetre almost, isn't it, in good teams? It it absolutely is. And it's it's quite something to watch to see this this unit of people all moving as one. I find it quite, quite incredible. 
Um, yeah, and, it, and it, people often do link it to cheerleading. And, and, and I think there's always been a, a, a misconception that Girls Morris Dancing is this kind of American import, that it grew out of cheerleading, that it's an Americanized performance. And actually, historically speaking, it's much older than, than cheerleading. Cheerleading with pom-poms started in about the 1940s, whereas Girls Morris Dancing with pom-poms and actually Men Morris Dancing with pom-poms has happened in the northwest of England since, you know, at least... I guess the 1860s, potentially even a little bit before that. So my little pet theory that I haven't proven, but it is my pet theory, is that actually girls Morris dancing is the precursor to cheer, that in some way, you know, girls Morris dancing crossed the ocean and became what we now think of as cheerleading. So it's the or cheerleading, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I mean, there's something to be said for that theory, I think, and, and it's possibly something that can be traced in the same way as you know we trace other elements of folklore that that migrate over time Um, absolutely I mean I'm not I have to one of those things I always have to say I'm not actually a historian I I end up working with history and historical kind of documents quite a bit but actually I, I came from a kind of anthropology ethnomusicology background so so yeah there's a lovely piece of work at some point to trace that history of girls morris and how it how it potentially was the uh yeah, was was the inspiration for cheerleading, but it's not been done by me. So, so how did you end up working with this particular topic so closely? Just explain that a little bit, because yes, you, you as you say, you come from uh, an ethnomusicology background and anthropology. You're also an artist, um, and how did all of those elements of, of what you believed you were going to do when you started out on this journey then end up being kind of part of what you do and then you are one of the few if not only scholars who actually work with Carnival Morris aren't you let's be honest. Certainly in the present day so I think that um, a few scholars were the you know, so certainly Teresa Buckland has written really interestingly on on the history of girls Morris dancing and there's a couple of others but but certainly at the moment I would say I, I'm pretty much the only one and I think I'm one of the few I don't I think I may be the only one who actually spent time with you know with dancers who who are who are practicing today so my my focus has always been on what's happening right now rather than the historical aspect um it's a really winding and sort of strange story i suppose like so many of us in our careers how how it's all kind of come together and so i suppose i should start by saying that i, I come from quite a quite a working class family and they were very i wanted to go to art school and my parents were very anti that and so the kind of um compromise position was that I would go to university and do a kind of proper degree and uh and you know if I wanted to do art that should be in my free time and so I, f- I first did art history and I hated it and then I did a master's in ethnomusicology and I liked that a bit more I was a performer I used to be in a band uh, called Pilgrim's Way I was a singer so I've always enjoyed folk music and playing folk music um and following the the master's degree or at the end of that I started as part of the kind of um as part of the marked work I I started doing a little bit of film because it was something a bit creative like I I do like to write but it was never something that really set my soul light to, to write and I always wanted to really go back to making something creatively so I started doing a little bit of film and at the end of the master's I discovered this whole area of artistic research which became something that I very much kind of locked into for about a decade and artistic research is essentially a response to the fact that so much scholarship the majority of scholarship is is text-based that we see knowledge as something which needs to be written down it needs to be verbal um 
where artistic research says, but people who make things with their hands or people who create or visual arts also contain knowledge and that we need to kind of acknowledge that in scholarship, that there's so much that we can ga- we can gain through making or creating visually. Um, so, yeah, I did a PhD at Manchester School of Art where my kind of topic was how can I bring art practice to an ethnomusicological study? So how can I, yeah, apply my creative practice to to a, a topic? And because folk was something I was always interested in, I wanted to look at what folk means in the 21st century, because I think even back then I had a sense that the kind of definitions of folk that I was seeing and the interpretations didn't seem to kind of cover the whole story for me. And I'm I'm speaking, I suppose, more of folk music and performance, because I think folklore, which I hadn't really encountered at that point, but folklore as a discipline has done a huge amount to kind of acknowledge the importance of contemporary materials. But I would say folk music and folk performance as a as an oeuvre, I saw it as much more rooted in a historical reproduction. And there were two things that I found sort of, you know, annoying about that, frustrating. And the first was that there was this idea that folk collecting was a kind of finite project, you know, that that it, it existed only in a particular time, which happened to coincide with the time when technology allowed us to collect it. But the, the, the very presence of that technology that allowed us to collect folklore also meant that it was going to die out, you know, that, 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 that people were going to stop making folk anymore because they could listen to records or they could do all kinds of other things. And I just found it strange, the idea that people were creative on their own terms up until a certain point and then it finished and it died you know and our role now was just to look back on that very brief window at which we'd ca- we'd captured it i just thought well, surely there are still people making things and creating things in their own you know outside of institutions that are worthy of of note and that was something i wanted to look at and also in certainly in folk performances in seasonal customs there's a real lack of roles for women like there are so so few folk practices seasonal customs that even allow women to participate and and our kind of even our archetype of morris dancing as you say is morris men these days obviously since the morris dancing revival of the 1970s and 80s there are huge huge numbers of women's morris sides and historically there have always been women who dance but for for the longest time our idea of morris dancing was and still is a man but also all these seasonal customs you know all of them the burry man the straw bear um i can't think of any more the haxi hood uh the earl of roane pretty much anyone that you can talk about the the primary participants mumming it's it's almost always led by men and i always as a woman always felt a bit of an opportunities gap i was like you know i would like to do this stuff and surely women were and still are making folk and so i had this wish to apply my art practice to return to that to really understanding what folk looks like in the 21st century and are there these practices that we can find perhaps that have fallen between the gaps that you know were more representative of the present day of the multicultural society that we live in and of all the citizens of of, of england or britain not just the white guys yeah and i think that situation has changed a lot in recent years now but but certainly when you look back at the historical record you're, you're absolutely right um so let's do that let's just move on to look a little bit more about the history and, and the origins which you touched on um a moment ago I, it's probably worth saying as well that 
this is obviously an audio podcast and, and Carnival Morris is a very visual display. Um, so it is worth looking and I will put a couple of links on the episode page on the website for this episode to some performances on YouTube because there are plenty on there. It is worth going and having a look at a couple just to get in your head uh, exactly what this looks like because it is, if nothing else, spectacular to watch, let's be honest. Now, it came out of the carnival movement in the 19th century. Um, uh, it is obviously Carnival Morris, <laughs> so that, that that much is fairly clear. Um, carnivals used to be uh, a very regular feature of, of the year and, and certainly a lot more sizable than they are now. And um, some, some of these would travel, some of these were, you know, regular features of towns. And this is where this emerges from, isn't it, in the, in the same way as you say some some other things have come out of the carnivals as well what did it look like at the beginning compared to what we have now and and how has that developed since that time to what we see in the 21st century when we see carnival morris yeah no so that's that's very true um so i kind of invented this term the town carnivals movement and when i was publishing about it that, that was a term i just came up with and, and it seems to be you know it seems to, to to represent it quite well. So, as you say, I think with the development of the railway network across the northwest, um, there were a lot of these kind of big um, local activities that were, would take place that really to try and encourage people to visit, to come to come by train to one of these towns and and have a day out. Um, and a lot of performance groups developed to kind of perform on that circuit often it was competitive and at that time there was quite good prize money associated with with winning a competition at a carnival so a lot of these groups you know came together for these and they would do the circuit uh you know and they would perform every year and they'd, 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 they'd travel around to do that um and carnival morris was a part of that and you know back at that time there were huge numbers it's important to say there still are very large numbers of people taking part in Carnival Morris, but it used to be even bigger. Um, and it really, I think almost every different street would have its own Carnival Morris group or performance group of some kind. In terms of how it looked, again, I'm not a historian, so I can only pull out what I know from the archival photographs that I started finding in the Morris Ring archive. Um, I think they would wear more of a plain sort of a dress, often, you know, like a white dress. Sometimes the shakers or the pom-poms would be made out of crepe paper or they'd be like, a, they call them tiddlers. So they'd be on a, a kind of a wooden stick and the the, the fluff, the, the pom-pom part would be at the top. A little bit like what you see in Northwest Morris dancing today. So actually, and that's probably an important point too, that for, for a long time in the Northwest, there was not really a distinction between Carnival Morris and Northwest clog morris dancing they just were all part of morris dancing in in that region but then at a certain point it became you know the girls morris became very much a single sex activity and it kind of it developed in its own way and i would say maybe there was a a, a rural urban divide in some way and and this comes up a number of times in historical records that i've seen where carnival morris dancing became associated with much more of an urban working class participation ship whereas northwest was perhaps slightly more rural and slightly more genteel and so at times carnival morris has actually been kind of banned from carnivals because the people doing it were too raucous and didn't you know didn't fit in in a nice rural country village and their particular moors you know often it's quite short dresses it was you know it's a it's quite a glamorous form of morris dancing and 
yeah and perhaps that didn't always go down too well but yeah I mean the dresses have changed with the times and that's something I think is really marvelous about it when when I look at traditional Morris dancing sides there's often an attempt to look back to an older model and to reproduce that obviously people like Boss Morris are doing something very different than that but when I've spoken to more revival revival sides um, they would say you know you look back to a, a, a previous model and that's how you create your costume where girls Morris dancing they change that costume every year or whenever they can afford to and so you can really see the kind of dress history trends showing in in the costumes that they wear so obviously in the 1860s they kind of looked like they were from the 1860s but in t- 2023 they they look modern and and I love that I think that's a real sign of the kind of folk process working in a, in a really creative way. Did the music change in the same way? Did they start off by dancing to traditional music the same as any other Morris team? Or would they have danced to what was considered to be popular music, but of that time? I think it certainly has changed. The music has changed. I would say, so I I think in it would be more kind of carnival carnival tune so I'm thinking like is it the old 99 and on the quarter deck and you know the is it the Athol Highlanders some of those real kind of old classic marching tunes that you probably would still see or hear if you went to a one of the carnivals the street carnivals that still exist in the northwest um and from my memory um until about the 1970s, really, the, the troops would just play to whatever was there. So there would be a band or there'd be an accordionist and they would just dance regardless to what the tune was. Then in the 1960s, 70s, they started dancing to LPs. So they would actually select the music that they wanted to dance to. And that has just you know, evolved over the time. So from LPs to CDs, CDs to MP3s, they now create these amazing kind of mixtape compilations for what they want to dance to. And it's, you know, it's often what what's in the charts right now, which again, mm. I think is lovely. Now look, you touched on the fact that there are elements that come out of Northwest Morris. So um, the Shakers, for example, are, are not too dissimilar to, to what we might see in Northwest Morris. There are other elements, aren't there, that we can still spot within there as well. I mean, the, the, I suppose what is essentially a rant step yeah. is a key element of the way that they move, um, whether dancing on the spot or, or transitioning, and that's very much a, a traditional um morris step isn't it the rant um are there other elements as well that we can still see that come across i would say that so yes you're absolutely right um they they call it the pas de bas is the is the standard step and it is very much like a kind of stylized rant it's a triple step um there have historically been more dance steps um there used to be a kick out step which was again very similar it's always been a triple step but sometimes it had a slight flourish to it now the vast majority of troops do the, the same pas de bas step i would say that the other obvious kind of link would be it's very much a processional dance you know you can see from the way they they begin the performances always begin with the dancers in a line they will sometimes process onto the arena and then they begin their performance in a line before kind of moving off into the different formations and I think that's a very clear kind of visual link to that kind of history of parading and for a long time Carnival Morris dancing has not been a part of 
carnivals anymore. So about in the 1990s, they started to move indoors into community centres and sports halls. There was a real kind of shift away from that public presentation. And so for a long time, it was quite difficult to see Carnival Morris. You know, you, it used to be such a central part of the, the, the calendar that you'd all, every summer you'd see all these troops of, of, of carnival dancers. Then they really you know went underground and you didn't see them anymore. And reasons for that are many and varied, you know, including you know, the, the weather being so poor and them not wanting to dance in the rain and muddy fields anymore, which I can quite understand. And also just because it's such a competitive performance, not wanting that variation of of kind of surface to dance on, you know, wanting to be sure that when you're, you've, that, you know, there's such a lot of practice that goes into getting those routines perfect, that they want to be sure that they can perform it at its most optimal whenever they do it. And I think there were so many variations when they performed outdoors that it was it was too difficult to control. So they went indoors. The reason I say that is just to say that they have started, I think, going outdoors again more, which is lovely. I think there's not as much as they did historically, but there's definitely a number of troops now who do go to carnivals again. And so you do get to see them. And so they are now going back to that processional element, you know, having to do their performance on a road, you know, while traveling down a road with other groups all performing at the same time. And that's a particular, you know, it's a particular skill. Northwest Morris groups are fantastic at it and carnival Morris dancing really has those roots to be able to draw on. What would you say the strength of, of this tradition is now? It certainly with with a lot of traditional Morris dance teams over the last two years where um, people have not been able to mix in the way that they used to and do the things that they used to do for traditional Morris dance teams who you know meet once a week and go down the pub and, and dance the same old dances that's not too problematic but for troops like carnival morris which are quite expensive to run quite expensive to to maintain in terms of costuming and those sorts of things have they suffered over the last couple of years or have do we still see the same kind of strength within the tradition that we had pre-pandemic for example it's a great question. So short answer, yes, I think that the strength is, is, is still very much there. And, and it's something I was slightly anxious about on their behalf when the pandemic hit, you know, just thinking, how is this going to continue? Um, I mean, I would just just clarify slightly. They, they're expensive to run in a way, but at the same time, it is, you know, they're still very much associated with areas that are not hugely well to do. It's still very much a working class tradition. And so I think costs are kept as low as they possibly can. And there's a lot of fundraising to keep things going. And uh, yeah, I think it, it's still, as a hobby for your child, it's still, I think, pretty inexpensive compared to a lot of things certainly compared to cheerleading I once went to a professional cheerleading competition and the the cost to get in and the the kind of merch and everything it's so much more monetized than Carnival Morris Carnival Morris is very cheap by by comparison but I was worried on that grounds of yeah because it does rely so heavily on people coming together and they obviously they lost a couple of seasons which was a pity what I loved was that there was this growth online of actually solo Carnival Morris dancing competitions by video. So I've always said, you know, Carnival Morris dancing relies really heavily on the synchronicity, on the group. There's no solo form. It's not like Irish dancing where there'd be like a solo performance. It's always about how the team work together. So I never imagined that they could have a kind of solo performance of it but they did and there were the, there was this mass of videos started coming out during the pandemic of people standing in their garden or on their doorstep and doing their their marching their footwork and you know and then sharing that online and so it was a it was a regular competition that people were sharing 
these individual or if there was families because often carnival morris dancing runs in families you might get mothers and daughters sisters you know cousins aunts everyone who is allowed to be in that bubble might come together and do their carnival morris performance in that way i haven't spoken in detail to any of the troupe principles since the, the pandemic um so i'm not sure whether there was much loss overall of dancers it's one of those things that like almost all folk traditions that I've encountered, like living folk traditions, people are always telling you that it's kind of dying out, that it's not as good as it was. So I'm fairly sure people will tell me that it is hard and that there's you know, there are fewer dancers and it's not going so well. But from what I can see as an outsider, competitions are back on. They're still super popular. It's still it's still happening in this wonderful way. And as I say, for one thing I've noticed since the pandemic is a refocusing on outdoor competitions and outdoor performances, perhaps because of that kind of obviously going into a sports hall these events are incredible you know thousands of people go to these events so actually to do them outdoors does potentially um you know ease some of that worries of super spreading events um so i would love that i would love it to see more carnival morris dancing outdoors yeah it'd be lovely to see more of it back in the carnivals again as well you're right so it's it's very encouraging to see that that it's heading back in that direction as well um Aside from your potential theory about whether it spreads across the Atlantic and and becomes cheerleading or has elements of uh, Carnival Morris subsumed into cheerleading or, or not, has it stayed primarily where it started within this country or have we seen a spread of it across the counties, for example? Do we have Carnival Morris troops performing in the south of England, for example? Really good question. Absolutely not. No, it has remained incredibly geographically bounded, which I think is fascinating because almost all other forms of Morris dancing you will now find way outside of their kind of traditional stomping grounds. Uh, so I went to Japan a few years back to meet Japanese Morris dancers performing Cotswold traditions and border traditions in Tokyo and Yokohama. And I, I love to see that happening. Carnival Morris dancing has remained very much bounded and uh, you know, it, it, and that's because I think there's not been that wish to travel too far outside of, you know, it, it is, again, to keep those costs relatively low. It was about keeping things relatively local and, and easy to access. Um, the four, as I think I mentioned earlier, the, the sort of quad, quadrum virate of carnival performances, your jazz bands, your entertainers, they all have their own sort of regions. So, so, for example, jazz marching bands are much more a kind of former mining community thing. So you find them in South Wales and in the North East and in the Midlands. Carnival Morris is the North West. Um, it creeps to kind of Staffordshire occasionally, but really you're very much up, up in the North West. Uh, majorettes are the only ones that have really kind of become a more global I mean, it, and majorettes, you, you really do find literally all over, all over the world. But uh, I don't know why. I, I've never understood quite what that, why that's the one that's, that has expanded in the way that it has. But no, Carnival Morris, very much just Northwest. I find that really interesting when, when so much other stuff has, has spread. And I wonder whether it's also because of another element, which I, I want to move on and talk about with your work as well, and that's that Carnival Morris is notoriously insular. It's it's very much a kind of community that is almost builds walls around itself. And so there are Carnival Morris people and then there are outsiders 
and the two don't cross over very much unless you happen to be an audience member at a Carnival Morris competition. Now, I don't know whether it's still as insular as, as it was, perhaps, but it was certainly known at one time for being like that. Now, you've worked very closely with a lot of Carnival Morris groups, so talk a little bit about how easy or otherwise it was to actually do that work in the first place. So, yeah, it was quite tricky um, at the outset, kind of making contact with with existing groups. I want to kind of preface this, though, by saying I don't necessarily believe that it was a conscious choice on the part of the communities to keep people away. I think that in terms of scholarship as a performance, it was very much denigrated. It you know, whenever you read really anything about Carnival Morris dancing, it was only very tiny amounts that were ever written anyway. On the whole, it was in a very critical tone, uh, you know, really saying this is not part of folk, this is not authentic, this is, you know, Maud Carpley's had some very kind of un- uncharitable things to say. I think the only person who really said anything positive was, was was Roy Domit, and he really did say, I think he said it was the heir to the, the finest of folk traditions or something like that. He, he, he was, you know, much more of an advocate for it. But on the whole... I think I think they they perhaps felt that they were um you know they were the black sheep they were kept out they were not they were not part of it and and you know I would say that was on the grounds of it being a very working class practice you know taking place in working class low income places they don't fit the kind of model of folk as something rustic and rural and bucolic and all of those things that we've come to associate I believe with that term folk they don't fit that and that's perhaps why it has been so insular. So when I set out to to do it, so I should probably say that you know, yeah, I I found I, I was I was round at my friend Duncan Broomhead's house, looking through the Morris Ring archive of photographs which he has at his house, and I grew up. You know, my dad was a Morris dancer back in the day, and he'd always told me growing up that women didn't do Morris dancing, and if they did, it was only since the 1970s, and it was all part of the women's lib movement, you know, it was it was all very kind of, you know, just feminism, that's why women did it, but it, it was actually a bit of a, a bit of an abomination, because women really shouldn't Morris dance, Morris dancing was inherently male, and they shouldn't do it, so that's what I'd kind of grown up with, I knew there were women who did it, but I always thought they were kind of copying the men in some way, and I think that was quite a common viewpoint until relatively recently, but anyway... Um, so I looked through the Morris Ring archive and was finding all of these old photographs of troops of Morris dancers who were very clearly women, you know, and girls going right back into the kind of, you know, 19th century. And I, I was totally blindsided by this because I had honestly been taught that this did not exist and I'd never heard anything about it. I'd read books about the Morris dancing history. I had never heard anyone say, but there are these groups of girls so I honestly didn't you know I was very surprised and I remember looking up on Google trying to find out you does this still exist what is it and does it still exist and finding that it did still exist but that there were these websites belonging to contemporary girls Morris troops that hadn't been updated for you know 10 years or something that they were not you know it was very hard to find out where they were how you would get in touch how you'd find out anything about it Eventually, you know, it became very much a Facebook thing. It was it was a social media enabled me to get in touch with with the girls Morris troops that exist because yeah, most communication was done digitally, done via 
via Facebook and these troops were closed community groups because like any, you know, it's it's primarily a children's hobby. You know, the majority of, of dancers will be school age children and there are safeguarding concerns. You know, it's like if I, if I wanted to, to find out about a, 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 a girl's football team, I imagine I might also find that a little bit tricky because, you know, it, it, it's a it's a children's hobby. So there was a little bit of difficulty initially just making access and there's, there's a fantastic uh historian within the girls morris community called ian mckinnon who i managed to get in touch with he's written um a book a kind of on a digital book about adjudicating adjudication of carnival morris dancing competitions which is something he's done for many years and i remember speaking with him and saying look how do i get to see this how do i make content and he put me in touch with Samantha Hamer from Orcadia Morris Dancers. And she really became my portal to the girls' Morris dancing community. She's still a really good friend. Uh, one of her dresses is currently on exhibition at Compton Verney uh, as a kind of representation of Carnival Morris. She's a beautiful, beautiful dressmaker and a wonderful storyteller. She's been involved in Carnival Morris for many years. And so, yeah, and she was very, very open and welcoming. And that's what I found that as soon as I actually managed to get an in, people have been so welcoming, so kind, so generous with their time and with their knowledge and their materials. I've put on a few little exhibitions and people have always been very, I've been really touched by what people will share with me, trust me with to, to be able to kind of, yeah, exhibit and show more people. I think there's been, a, there's a real wish to share the performance with others, but I think a real fear of that because for so long they had been denigrated and, and kind of made fun of and you know that I remember when I first met Sam she said um that there'd been a lot of film crews kind of being trying to get in touch and saying can we make a documentary and it was at that time of the big fat gypsy weddings and I think there was this kind of slight well there was a big worry in that community that that it was going to be to make fun of them that it was going to be to kind of yeah, to, to to misrepresent them. And so all of the, the troops said no, which I was actually, again, rather kind of impressed by that, that everybody as a group kind of went, no, we're not going to have this. Like, we, we love what we do and we're not going to be made fun of on the television. And I love that. But but actually, people have been super welcoming and, and generous. Do you think the, that view of Carnival Morris has changed now? You know, they, they were the um, outcasts of the Morris dance tradition, as you say. You know, they, they were viewed uh, unfavourably by a lot of traditionalists um, years ago. Has that changed now? Certainly, you know, they're, they're well represented on the EFTAS website. You know, the Morris Ring has information written by you about them um so you know it's not like they're not represented but how are they viewed in that traditional arena now i definitely think things have changed a lot and i i take a little tiny bit of credit for this i do think that some of the work i did a few years back helped to kind of open that channel and actually people in the folk world were far more open to girls morris dancing than i ever thought they would be. I think it felt important to construct the kind of argument that was quite watertight. It's very hard to argue with the rightful place of Carnival Morris within that canon of of, of of Morris dancing. As soon as you kind of look at how all the pieces fit together, you really can't deny that it that it is a legitimate aspect of the tradition. And so I think perhaps what I did that hadn't been done before was to really kind of assert that in a kind of concise way that kind of went, you just can't argue with this. And actually, as I say, the majority of people have been really, really 
open to it and very interested and I now see really lovely exchanges again on social media that where Carnival Morris groups are now part of the you know the Morris dancer how many Morris dancers are there on Facebook group you know all of these things and there is that that bit of conversation happening and to see Carnival Morris dancing represented in Eftus to have it at exhibitions like Making Mischief at Compton Verney just shows that it is being embraced more there are still very different communities at play within those groups it is still a very separate part of the tradition I still it would be difficult I think on a logistical uh you know logistically to get a girls Morris dancing troupe at a folk festival and whether they'd want to do that or not I I don't know in reality I think there have been invites but it's never quite come off yet and and I think that's fine I my interest was never in trying to force girls Morris dancing to kind of become part of folk the folk world what I was interested in was just asserting within within the Morris dancing fraternity that that there was this independent female led tradition that was really thriving and that there was stuff that we could learn from that. You know, I I and, and I, I, I don't want to say this in a kind of I mean this in the in the in the best possible way that you know so many historians spend a huge amount of time looking back at how did the Morris dancing tradition evolve? How do you, what was it like to, to see Morris dancing before it became a revival performance? And I kind of say, we don't need to look back entirely because it's happening now. Girls Morris dancing is, is still a thriving kind of evolving tradition that is not a revival. And that is a really unusual thing and a really beautiful thing. It is. Um, I, I think you're probably being a little bit modest as well about, about the part that you've played in all of this. Uh, I, I first remember um the early stages of your work in this uh, when you presented for the folklore society at one of their conferences i think it was probably cardiff which was quite a few years ago now it's a long I, time I, I forget how many we're, we're we're both significantly more experienced in life now than we were at that, indeed <laughs> that yeah it was a, my, my point is it was a long time ago so what? your research has gone a long way since then and as I say, you you are primarily the the key person from the point of view of the folk tradition and folklore and and history, whether you acknowledge it or not, in in working with this material. So I think you've actually had a massive part to play in in changing the views of Carnival Morris from within the the, the Morris tradition, um, and also you know for other people being more aware of it now. Um, I also, how... sorry, just to interrupt, no, no. I also think it, I benefit from there being a wave of uh, interest more broadly in kind of equality and diversity and inclusion and ensuring that that kind of we're representing so that there are a lot. I, I, I had thought initially that I was a lone voice kind of banging and banging on the wall to try and say, look, we need to we need to look at more female traditions. But actually, I, I feel like at this moment, there's a, a great deal of interest in that, which is yeah. really wonderful. Yeah, there absolutely is, and you know we've we've covered it in in various ways as as have other people as well, which which is great, and and all of that has come together in huge leaps and bounds over the last few years, which is brilliant. So, bearing all that in mind, and the role that you have played, and the research that you've done thus far, where does it go from here? Are you still continuing to work within? this area is there still more work to do we call it work maybe it's not work even research however you want to present it what what's next in terms of carnival morris it's a good question um so i'm not an act i'm not an academic anymore i spent 
I did my PhD and then I spent about seven years, what I call circling the plug hole of academic employment. You know, I really, really tried to get proper academic employment and, and specifically to get funding to do more work on Carnival Morris because in, in reality, the work that I did, you know, I, I began it in the PhD and it was very much at the very end of the PhD that I suddenly found this massive stuff and went, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. I want to do this. Uh, you know, this is what I want to do. And obviously couldn't do it all within the time of the PhD. But then finding that funding academically was impossible. I did a lot of stuff in my own time and I, you know, I, I worked as hard as I was able to, given needing to also make a living, to publish what I had and to, to continue with with bits of research um so I've got a few publications which is which is great and, and that felt really important to actually have something out there that people could could refer to to know that this exists and that it is valuable um but yeah I was never very successful in 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 getting support to do that bigger project and there really is a much bigger project that needs to be done at some point you know I've been saying it for, for 10 years and you know there are there are people in the community who have living you know, in this living memory of some really key moments within the history of, of carnival morris dancing who are you know very elderly now people passing away sadly all the time and and with them goes a lot of their amazing knowledge and and also their personal archives you know because carnival morris dancing was not really considered important until quite recently and you know um there isn't much to draw on you know the 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 archives that we can find of Morris dancing will still have a tiny, tiny amount in relation to girls' Morris dancing. And yet people in their homes have these fantastic collections of scrapbooks and photographs and artefacts and costumes. And it's incredible. And yeah, I, I really, I think there is a fantastic piece of work to be done to, to to try and gather that together and to, and particularly, you know, the historical side, as I as I confess, is not my forte. So I would love to work with a historian to kind of really nail some of those things things down a little bit more. For me, so yeah, I, I circled the plug hole of academia, always like working on other people's projects that were always adjacent to what I wanted to do. And I did the Morris dancing stuff in my own time. And then I got really like during the pandemic, I, I just I think I felt for a long time like I was not really getting anywhere, that I was saying this stuff and I was still seeing so much what I felt was quite ill-informed stuff about Morris, about folk, about gender in folk. I got really tired of it. And so I wrote what I call my folk is a feminist issue manifesto. Uh, and I published that in 2021. And it really, it's a 10 point manifesto. Everyone's got to have one. And it really, it was just me putting down as concisely as I was able what I believe my learnings were from working with Carnival Morris and and some of these other you know traditions that are lesser known that that people you know that go below the radar. It, it felt really important to me to kind of get that all in one place. And again, I think just because of that kind of groundswell that's happening right now about inclusion and trying to kind of diversify the canon of folk music and folk, folk performance, um, I feel like it's starting to be. You know, people definitely have read the manifesto and you know speak with me about it and, and I and I see element it's being used the manifesto is currently being used by a group who are doing a project on drag which I love like I feel like it, it is having this very small impact so I would say that what I have ended up doing is is looking more broadly I the Carnival Morris stuff I stay in touch with my with my friends in that community because I love them so much and, and and yeah if I ever get the chance to see Carnival Morris I'm always I'm always there I still write stuff when people ask me but I'm not actively pursuing research in that area at the moment 
largely because you know life just had to move on and I had to do things to uh, <laughs> to make money but yeah my I, I'm I, what what Carnival Morris taught me was that the definition of folk that so many of us grew up with so many of us kind of recognize is only a small part of the picture and that Carnival Morris is not alone in being a practice that has been overlooked because of the people who who perform it that there are so many other traditions happening all around us that are so vibrant and brilliant and and you know worthy of 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 value and study um beyond Carnival Morris and so that's I suppose that's what I want to be now with the work I do is is to kind of advocate for that to you know, to try and push those stereotypes a little bit because I still see them. I still think there's a an overemphasis on the south of England, on rural, on things that look a particular way. At the moment, there's a great interest in folklore and magic and a particular aesthetic cottage core, and it's all very kind of aesthetic and beautiful. And and Carnival Morris doesn't fit with that, and lots of traditions don't fit with that. And so there's a tendency then to say, well, they're not. That's not interesting. But I I think you know that some of that stuff is is the most interesting to me and I, I want to see it getting its due <laughs> absolutely which is why we um you know we we paint with a broad brush really certainly in terms of, of this podcast and, and cover a wide variety of stuff for precisely those reasons and you make some really important points in that last bit as well you know this this is the reason why we set up the folklore library and archive for example it is to capture this material and, and looking at 2023 one of our key projects for this year hopefully is going to be that very thing it's to find these personal archives and to make contact with these people and go look this stuff needs to be saved whether that's getting somebody to go and just record an interview with these people so that we have you know a, a captured conversation about these traditions uh, yes if they have material that they want to donate or for us to be able to digitize this is precisely what we need to do you know that that is why we set this project up so you know there is probably some bridge building that that you could do between some of people in in that community for example and and the folklore library just just to try and get that to happen that, that's a separate conversation but no absolutely the, no absolutely at the end and of the day, think, it's important yeah what what i what i've you know say my experience very much has been that everybody that i've worked with whether it be carnival morris jazz bands hairs tailing on the island of jersey what, whatever i've kind of looked at people are just genuinely excited to share their their stories and their materials they've just never been asked before it's never been considered of of worth and so for someone to take take an interest is a really powerful thing and it's great what the the folklore library can do in that regard as well yeah and hopefully perhaps off the back of this episode we can try and look at capturing some of that material from people and and making sure that that it is represented properly and and you and i can talk about that separately perhaps um let's finish off with with two questions together um just to send people on their way to look more into this uh, part one of that is where should people actually look for more information on carnival morris uh, and part two is where should people look to find out more about what you're doing now okay so part one um it is still somewhat tricky to find lots of information about carnival morris dancing um I obviously have a number of publications that are... So I have a website 
for the Folk is a Feminist Issue project. Uh, and the, the address for that is www.folkisfeminist.com. And all of my publications are linked on there or the majority that are available online are linked. And if there's anything that anyone wants, they're very welcome to email me and I will send you a PDF of it. So I would say in terms of kind of scholarly work, it would be the stuff that's on my website. Uh, if you're very interested, uh, have a look for Teresa Buckland's work. Um, there, there's there's a there's a bunch of kind of older stuff that you, you, you can find, but it's very small. Um, in terms of actually seeing representations of carnival morris dancing um youtube is still pretty reasonable for looking you don't get everything on there because not all troops permit recording at their competitions but there's definitely a lot of really good clips on there and historical clips on the kind of pathé archive you can look at old carnivals like nutsford uh in the 1860s or 80 whatever you know maybe not quite that far back but you can see some some really old footage um Names to look out for. I love Orcadia Morris dancers. They were my first troupe that I was able to work with. And I, they've won the, the troupe of the year at least five times in the last 10 years. They are very, very good. So they're, they're a good opportunity to look at. Platbridge Morris are another fantastic group. Um, they've also been going for many decades and have, have, have won many awards for what they do. So another one to look out for. Um yeah, that might be. I mean, yeah, and and obviously, if you're if you're on social media, Facebook, there are um, a lot of Carnival Morris dancers now on there. On the what do, how many Morris dancers are there on Facebook? Can't remember the name of it, but yeah, in terms of you know actually seeing stuff as it's happening in real time, you know, from from competitions, that's probably a good good place to have a look. Fantastic. And what about you and your work? <laughs> um so my work now is is a little bit different i i've gone freelance in the last two years which is something i'm really really happy about um and i'm so primarily working as an artist which is kind of it's still all very much linked to you know the phd that i did and um yeah and then the kind of the, the practice that i've been building over the last five or five or ten years let's say um so yeah I, I have a website as well where I've got a bunch of things going on um so my website is www.lucywright.art I'm also on all of the social medias very easy to find uh, I've got a lot of really nice things coming up this year um I've been involved in an exhibition I keep mentioning it was an exhibition at Compton Verney at the moment called Making Mischief which is a fantastic kind of display of British folk costume it's curated by uh, Simon Costin of the uh, and Melanie Robinson of the uh, Museum of British Folklore, and it's it's a great exhibition. I'm giving a talk there in April and doing a workshop in May, which will be really nice. I'm heading back to Japan next month to meet some of my old Morris dancing friends from the last time I went back in 2018, um, and I've got some stuff in a show at Leeds Art Gallery. So I'm I'm very much kind of yeah still actively plowing my furrow and I still very much you know I gathered this kind of archive of materials around kind of lesser known female-led folk practices and they're very much the inspiration for the artwork that I make now so it, it's not so direct necessarily but it's still very much in embedded in, in what I'm doing so fantastic yeah. check that Excellent. out <laughs> lots lots there for people to go and look at uh, and yeah. I would encourage everybody to do so uh, that's been fascinating it's been great to shine a spotlight on uh, this subject which um, although you've been working on it for many years as you say is is still not uh, a spotlight that is shone too often so very very happy to do that Lucy thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to chat about it thanks so much Mark this has been really fun <laughs> my pleasure I'm grateful to Lucy for sharing her research on Carnival Morris for all of you. 
I'm hoping, with Lucy's help, to be able to look towards collecting some of this valuable material together through the Folklore Library and Archive, to help future researchers who want to investigate the Carnival Morris tradition. The Folklore Library and Archive is a non-profit organisation, formed through the podcast, to preserve folklore materials and to make them freely available for the future. Our Patreon page supports the Library and Archive and the podcast in equal measure, and it's down to those who choose to sign up there, or who access our lecture materials on the website or use our donation button, that we can do as much as we do for future folklore audiences. Please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast for more details, or take a look at the past lectures in our folklore shop at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.